0: It's always funny to see the look on the parents' faces when the kids get dismissed. So we, how many of you guys were at the guys' night out this last Friday? Let me show of hands. Yeah, good number. Yes, amen. Where'd that come from? Oh, okay. You weren't there. Okay. <laughs> you were there in spirit. Yes, of course you were. I thought I saw you in the corner. Well, listen, it's not too late. The women had their meeting this week, and it was outstanding. 32 women there. It was really neat. And the guys had about 29 guys there. There's room. We have a big room. We would love for you to come out. It's not too late to join these studies. So what we would ask is if you want to participate, just go to the back, let us know. At this point, all the books that we originally ordered have been distributed. So if you want a book, we can get it for you, probably cheaper than you can get it well, we're going to ask you to prepay for the book. That way we don't end up with inventory that's not used. And then we'll get it to you probably in the next week or two, and you'll be ready for the next get-together on the third Tuesday and third Friday of February. Okay? So I would encourage you, men, women, come. You'll be blessed. Mark 13, we're back. In Mark 13, verses 1 through 13, we started this message last week. If you're using one of those blue church Bibles, you can turn to page 849. 849 will bring you to Mark 13. Titled this, Pessimistic Prophecies. Let me just say this at the introduction that I'm not going to repeat everything that we said last week because there's just not enough time. So I would encourage you, you can go online. And you can access the sermons from the Community tab. You can also, if you're on the table, it's right there. Summit Sermons are right there available to you on the front page of the table on the left-hand side. And usually they are uploaded a few days after Sunday for you to have access to the sermon. So I would encourage you, if something doesn't make sense today, to maybe check out last week's sermon. Let me tell you a little story here as we begin our time together. A family had twin boys. Whose only resemblance was each, which was each other in regard to their looks. If one felt it was too hot, the other thought it was too cold. If one said the TV was too loud, the other claimed the volume needed to be turned up. Opposite in every way, one was an internal optimist, and the other a doom and gloom pessimist. Just to see what would happen on the twins' birthday, their father loaded the pessimist room with every imaginable toy and game. The optimist's room he loaded with horse manure. That night, the father passed by the pessimist's room and found him sitting amid his new gifts and bitterly crying. Why are you crying, the father asked. The pessimist responded, because my friends will be jealous. I'll have to read all these instructions before I can do anything with this stuff. I'll constantly need batteries and my toys will eventually get broken. That sounds about right for a pessimist. Passing the optimist twin's room, the father found him dancing for joy in the pile of manure. What are you so happy about? He asked. To which the optimist twin replied, There has got to be a pony in here somewhere. I thought that was pretty good. Generally speaking, people would rather hang around an optimist than a pessimist, wouldn't you agree? A pessimist tends to kind of just bring everybody down with their overly negative view of the world and their circumstances. Well, the message today, which is actually part two of the message that we started last week, is titled Pessimistic Prophecies, Pessimistic Prophecies, and I titled it that because i I'm specifically referring to Jesus' gloomy predictions, dire predictions about future events events recorded here in Mark chapter 13, verses 1 through 13. But to be clear, Jesus is not a pessimist. Jesus is simply saying that things are going to get worse before they get better. A lot worse, in fact. In a sense, there will be a great amount of manure dumped on this world before the end comes. But we we need not become depressed or, or downcast or distraught for a new and glorious day is coming after all the grim events have ran their course. See, there really is a pony under the pile of manure For the people of God. But for those who have no relationship with God, there is really nothing to look forward to except more manure. With that, let's read the text together. And I'm going to read all 37 verses of this chapter just for context. I did this last week. I'm going to do it again and I'm going to read fairly quickly. Just follow along. But we'll be addressing just the first 13 verses that we started last week and finishing it up this week, Lord willing. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 13, And as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. Referring to the temple, the synagogue there, or the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. For nation will rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand, "...what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. But, verse 14, "...when you see the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not to be, let the reader understand..." And if the Lord had not cut short the days, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect whom He chose, He shortened the days. And then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or look, there He is, do not believe it. For false Christ and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all these things beforehand. But in those days, after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. And the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then He will send out the angels and gather His elect from the four winds from the ends of the earth to the ends of heaven. From the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also when you see these things taking place, you know that He is near at the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all stay awake. We are going to continue, as we started last week, to consider Jesus' prophetic warnings given to his disciples here, just looking at verses, the first 13 verses, so that we might understand how to respond as Christians living in these last days. This long discourse here, one of the longest in chapter 13, or the Olivet Discourse, as it's referred to, as I said last week, because it was made while Jesus was standing or sitting on the Mount of Olives just east of the temple in Jerusalem, was made in response to the questions disciples that came to Jesus after his dire prediction about the temple, about this thing, this beautiful, wonderful building being torn down. Now, their questions were not just about the destruction of the temple as it might appear in Mark's Gospel, the one we just read but they're actually about greater events that they, they may have thought included the destruction of the temple that Jesus had just announced. What great events? And we talked more about this last week, so I'm just quickly reviewing. Those great events being the coming of the Christ to bring an end to the current age, restore Israel, establish the kingdom of God on earth, and usher in a glorious glorious age for humanity. Those great events. That their questions were focused on the, those great events related to the end of the age is more clear to us as we read Matthew's account of the same event or the Olivet Discourse. I'll just pop it up here for you on the screen. Matthew 24.3. This is how Matthew records the response of the disciples to Jesus' prediction about the destruction of the temple. As He sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to Him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, the things that Jesus just announced, and what will be the sign of Your coming and of the end of the age? This is their mindset. This is what they're thinking. They're thinking that the end of the age is about to take place and one of the events within those events must be the destruction of the temple. Now, I told you this last week, but remember, Jesus' disciples did not anticipate two comings of Christ, meaning that He comes once, He dies, He resurrects, He ascends back to the Father with the promise that He will come again. They did not anticipate that at all. They only understood that there would be one coming of Christ. And when He came, He would come and suppress and put down the enemies of God and establish His kingdom on earth. And I referenced a couple of verses, Luke 19.11, Luke 18.31-34. Both of those, or the two of them together, tell you two things. One, they expected the immediate coming of the kingdom, that it was about to appear, because the Messiah was there, here is the Christ. And also, even though Jesus kept telling them, they're going to kill me in Jerusalem... They did not understand that. They did not grasp that. How would that fit into the way that they understood prophecy? They knew the Christ would come, but they did not see two comings, or this long period of time between the first coming and a second coming in which all of the prophecies about the kingdom of God would be fulfilled. And I said last week, if you take a look at Zechariah 14, we begin to read that, which was a prophecy they would have been familiar with that includes both Israel's future devastation and final restoration as events that are linked together. It is reasonable to see or understand why the disciples would have tied the destruction of the temple to the events climaxing in the coming of the Son of Man, Christ, that's how he referred to himself, the Messiah, and the establishment of the Messianic Kingdom, all of which were to take place at the end of the age. So based on all that, that's what they're thinking. This is the events that are going to take place. Jesus tell us what can we look for for all of that to happen. But Jesus' response in Mark 13 appears to anticipate an undefined undefined period of time between His first coming and His second coming. So He's not even talking to them about a second coming, but He's telling them what they're going to need to know, and they'll understand very clearly after Jesus Christ is dead, resurrected, ascended, and He comes back and says, I'll come again. Now they understand there's going to be a period of time before God's plan for the ages begins to take effect, that being in reference to God's establishment of His kingdom on earth. This period of time, according to Jesus, would be marked, this period of time between His first coming and His second coming, would be marked by various kinds of trouble and eventually escalate into a unique and horrific stage of history called the Tribulation. The Tribulation. A time of Tribulation. In fact, that Mark 13:19, we just read it, reports this, as has not been from the beginning of creation that God created until now and never will be. This will be an incredible time of chaos and destruction and devastation upon this planet. It's leading up to that. That's where we're headed. But in the interim, there will be things that happen that Jesus warns His disciples about. Things that remain applicable to us today as followers of Jesus Christ living in the last days. So I understand verses 3-13 through to be then warnings about present history that I'm also referring to as the last days or the time period between the first coming of Christ and the second coming of Christ and the end of the age. Wow, okay, I got all that out. Now that brings us all the way back to the first point, which we started last week, which is warnings against deceptions. Warnings against deceptions. And we looked at warnings against false Christ. And I'm not going to repeat any of that for sake of time, but I would encourage you to download or listen to last week's message. The second warning is against false signs. So we have false Christ or false signs. Actually, the first warning is against deceptions. Two sub-points, false Christ and false signs. And there's an outline that you can follow in your bulletin. Look back at the text. Look back at the Word of God with me. Mark chapter 13, beginning in verse 7. And that's where we're picking up from where we left off last week. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. Now, I am am identifying these as false signs because according to Jesus, they do not, that's what the text says, Do not indicate the end is immediately at hand, or that the coming of Christ to establish his kingdom is right around the corner, but are things that must take place before the end, and according to the text, are only the beginning, the beginning of the birth pains. One writer says it this way. But the end is not yet, referring to Jesus' statement here. These stirring events do not constitute the immediate sign of the consummation of the age. That word's used a lot in biblical material, consummation. Consummation is just the completion of something, the the satisfactory completion of something. So these do not constitute or prove the immediate sign of the consummation or completion of the age. Everything has now come to an end. Rather, not yet implies that there must first be more suffering. More suffering is in store than just these things. The end, as it's referred to here, is the eschatological goal of history. That is the final establishment of God's kingdom on earth. Or to say it another way, All of history is moving towards this great event. The establishment of God's eternal kingdom on earth. Which will happen at the end of the age. But before that happens, a lot of stuff has to happen. A lot of not so pleasant stuff. Now I think it's obvious to us that are sitting in this room that wars, that's what the text says, and by the way it's plural there, It's not a war. It's not a particular war. It's wars and rumors of wars and conflicts among nations and world powers and earthquakes and famines correctly characterize life on earth as we know it. Now and in the past. Right? And not surprisingly, just as Jesus prophesied it just as He said it would be. Jesus' warning to His disciples points to a particular or to a difficult, undefined period of time on earth before the end will come. So here's a message. Don't be alarmed. Don't be alarmed or frightened by these things. Don't freak out. But realize that this must take place according to God's sovereign purposes And realize this, that these things that he just listed here, wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines, are only the beginning of birth pains. Now, it's interesting that Jesus compared these grim events to being like the beginning of birth pains. (laughs) Now, the men are just kind of clueless here, but the women will relate right away. We know, those who have given birth, we know that birth pains eventually, right? They eventually give way to birth or new life, if you will. Birth or new life. But the period between labor and birth is not set in stone, nor is it necessarily short or long. It could be either could be either, right? Yes, we know when labor pains, that's what it's referring to, birth pains start, we now know that a baby is coming. But is the baby coming tonight? In the morning? God forbid a couple of days from now? We do not know with certainty when the baby is coming. All we know is the baby is coming. But before that wonderful event can happen, labor must run its course. And labor, beloved, is not pleasant. I don't know that from personal experience, just from the testimonies of many women. Labor is not pleasant, but rather entails intense pain. Just remember when this was written, there were no epidurals. Not that that removes all pain, women, or anything like that. I'm going to get myself in trouble up here. I know there's still an incredible amount of pain associated with these events. But they would have understood, all oh, birth pains, yeah. You know, bite a stick and hold on for the present to come. These events were associated with suffering. And, the, and the Jesus says here in the text, these events are only the beginning of the suffering. That is ultimately coming upon this world before Christ comes again in all his glory to establish God's everlasting kingdom on this earth. They're only the beginning. They are not yet, it is not yet the end. One writer says this, This emphasis, the end is still to come, and these things are the beginning of birth pains, suggest that an extended period of time will precede the end. Each generation will have its own wars and natural disasters, Yet all these events fall within God's purposes. Human history is heading toward the birth of a new messianic age. That's where we're headed. Since that is the case, beloved, Jesus' disciples need not be agitized or agitated. <laughs> I make up my own words up here. Agitated, panicked, or distracted from their mission. Okay? They need not be agitated, panicked, or distracted from their mission by these events, but realize that they are going to come. Suffering is going to come, and that's just the beginning of the suffering. Wars and rumors of wars and earthquakes and famines and such. But they must be diligent to continue proclaiming Christ to a lost world while there is still time. Now, I thought it might be good here to say something about prophecy or end-time seminars that are prevalent in our society and have been. It's not a new thing, but it has been maybe more so with the invention of the Internet and the ability for anybody and everybody to promote themselves as experts in this or that. Prophecy or end-time seminars in the Christian community have attracted large crowds and a great amount of attention from the Christian community. By the way, these conferences also sell a great amount of the authors' and experts' books or DVDs on the subject. Not that I'm suggesting anything by that. Maybe. But just consider that. But many times, these conferences, these prophecy conferences, these conferences that supposedly have all the answers and no in a roundabout time period when Jesus is coming back, and it's always fairly soon, they are often characterized by heavy speculation, sensationalism, the appeal to the emotions, and a sloppy and inconsistent interpretation of Scripture, to say the least. Let me give you an example of how this works. Hal Lindsay. Anybody in here know Hal Lindsay? Just a few. Maybe the older... I blew it again. Maybe the more mature crowd... Uh, Knows Hal Lindsey. But for you, those of you who don't, many are still impacted by Hal Lindsey and are still promoting his thinking. In his 1970 mega bestseller, it sold 28 million copies by 1990. So over 20 years, got a bit. I'm sure he made some royalties off of that. The Late Great Planet Earth was the name of this book. It interprets the parable of the fig tree that we just read about in Mark 13, which we're going to get there, Lord willing. We will get there in a few weeks. But he sees the parable of the fig tree in Mark 13 and the putting forth of its leaves as a picture of what happened when Israel became a nation in 1948. Follow me here. So he he takes the Word of God there and he says, This, it has been fulfilled when Israel became a nation in 1948. Based on that interpretation and the verses that follow in Mark 13, let me read them to you. So also when you see these things taking place, i.e. the formation of the nation of Israel, you know that He is near, at the very gates. Verse 30, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And the all these things taking place is referring to the abomination of desolation and the coming of the Son of Man and the end of the age. All right, you with me so far? So he sees the parable here of this fig tree fulfilled in the establishment of the nation of Israel in 1948. Then according to the text... When you see these things taking place, that generation that sees these things taking place will not pass away until all the things are fulfilled. So then he teaches that a generation or the generation that existed when Israel became a nation, as I said, would not pass away, and that a generation in the Bible is something like 40 years. Okay. So based on that, it was implied that Christ would return sometime because he didn't want to pick a particular day or hour, he would return sometime before 1988. Forty years plus 1948 when Israel became a nation. So guess what? He wrote another book in 1980 as the time was drawing near. It was called The 1980s, Countdown to Armageddon. Anybody remember that book? A few of you? The countdown to Armageddon, the countdown to the end, to the final war, to the the consummation of the ages, to the return of Christ. In it, he said, the prophets told us the rebirth of Israel, no other event would be the sign that the countdown has begun. Okay, but according to him, the rebirth of Israel is the formation of the nation in 1948. According to him. Then he goes on to say, This would be the sign that the countdown has begun. Since that rebirth, which he concluded happened in 1948, the rest of the prophecies have begun to be fulfilled quite rapidly. For this reason, I am convinced that we are now in the unique time so clearly and precisely forecast by the Hebrew prophets. That book was quietly taken out of print in the early 1990s. Because the 80s had come and gone and passed and nothing happened. But as... The people who followed Hal Lindsey and the Christians who got excited about this consummation of the age and and thinking he got it right, there was this intense enthusiasm and craziness leading up to 1988. Once 1988 passed, the 1989, the 1990, what happened? Since then, the new end-time teachers and so-called prophecy experts. Still see just as Hal Lindsey saw that the nation of Israel, which became a nation in 1948, they still see it as the critical fulfillment of prophecy. But now they suggest that a generation could mean anywhere from 70 to 80 years, and they get that from Psalm 90:10, which talks about the length of a life of a man could be 70, could be 80. So, guess what? Let's put them all together. Let's do a little math. 1948 plus 70. Where does that get you? 2018, maybe. 2018, 80 years, 2028. Ah, what year are we in? Whoo! We are on the edge of something here. Right? So 2018, if you want to buy a little more time to sell your books, 2028. Now, I'm being a little facetious here. So these people, sincerely, many of them, believe that the end is still around the corner. Additionally, they will point to other current events that are taking place in the Middle East. In fact, how Lindsey believed that the Soviet Union would rise, and it was rising in power in the 80s, and they would come and conquer the U.S., and he had all these things laid out, and this would set off the events that would take place and lead to the end. But guess what happened? The Soviet Union collapsed! So then Hal Lindsey found other scriptures somehow and interpreted it to mean that, yes, we knew that would happen and and that was going to happen too, but the end is still drawing near. So these people will look at current events and they're constantly trying to pin current events to what's going on because they believe that based on the nation of Israel, 1948, being a fulfillment of that prophecy, which I'm just going to tell you right now, I don't think so. I don't think you can make any connection. You can go ahead and say it, but I don't think you can make an honest, biblical interpretation of that passage and say dogmatically, oh yes, that's it. That's what Jesus was talking about, 1948. But they keep saying that. So then they look at these things, and then they happen to look at the natural disasters in our world, and they say, Look, it supports that the imminent end of the world is near. See all the wars, and the rumors of wars, and the earthquakes, and the famines, and the tornadoes, and the natural disasters? You're like, yes, I do see all that. I do. And we get all excited and they go, that's just more evidence. He's right near the door. But remember what Mark said? He said these things are just the beginning. Labor can take a long time. Ladies, right? Right? So they highlight the increased activity in earthquakes. This is one of the techniques. And suggest that like a woman's birth pains, that become more frequent and more powerful as you move closer towards the moment of giving birth. Likewise, the more frequent the earthquakes and even, they would argue, sometimes more powerful, that must mean that the end is very near. And they refer back to Mark 13.8 to support their view. Now, even if that's the case, that the earthquakes will increase in intensity and frequency as we grow closer to the end. Let me just let you know this. Accurate recordings of earthquakes didn't begin until the early 1900s. Okay, a very, We have a very short period of time in history where we actually took accurate readings of the earthquakes happening. So how are we to know that the activity that we are experiencing today is not a cyclical trend that increases and decreases in periods of activity over history, just like other cyclical trends in nature. How do we know that? We're basing it off just the readings we have now, and we're saying there's an increase in activity? You're talking about hundreds, thousands of years of history. This could simply be a cyclical trend going up, and it'll go back down. Just like all the events in the Middle East, one month, it seems like the end is at hand. All of Israel's enemies are going to evade her. The next month, no one's talking about it. Nothing's going on. It seems like there's peace. You have these trends of peace, so-called peace, and then hostility and anger, and peace and hostility and anger. But every time the trend goes towards hostility and anger, all the end-of-time prophecy folks get all riled up and go, see, see? He's right around the corner. Okay. Beyond that, there are geological experts that would suggest that the current activity, earthquake activity we have, is not, has not increased in recent time, but falls within the expected and normal range of activity. And beloved, as you look through history, there have been periods of intense wars. How about World War I? How about World War II? People then said the same thing. The end is at hand. Great earthquakes that we've had in our history and over the world. They would say the same thing. The end is at hand. And yet, the Scripture says these are just the beginning of the birth pains. You may see these things, but the end is not yet. So I, I don't know what to tell you, except that I think we, have a, we don't know when He's coming back. But these events do not clearly tell us that it's immediate and right around the corner. They only tell us one thing. We have entered into labor. A baby is coming. So one writer says, Christians can be assured of two things, that the coming of the Lord is certain and that it will occur someday. Looking for warning signs can only agitate Christians, sidetrack them from the important business at hand, or become simply an intellectual amusement. One writer was talking about the fact that a conference on in-time prophecy will draw cr- tremendous crowds, but have a conference on the ethical demands on the Sermon on the Mount about how the disciples of Jesus Christ are actually to live as followers of Christ and see how many people show up. Listen, I, I don't have to... Convince people to turn to Christ because, the, because Jesus is coming back by the year 2018 or 2028. For them, it could be that night. I'm not, I'm not going to help them, try to get them to focus on listen, let me tell you, you better make a decision now because when Jesus comes back, it might be too late. He could come back for you tonight. Because after you die, the Bible says, it is appointed for a man to die once, and after this comes the judgment. So you may get your chance to meet God tonight, maybe before I'm done even speaking to you. Your heart will stop beating, and it will be over for you. That's what I tell people. Decide now. Make a decision for Christ now. Okay, okay, we have a whopping five minutes left. That's excellent. Warnings about persecution. I don't know what happened. But Mark 13, 9 through 13. This is the second one. We'll kind of do this quickly. So we have, we have warnings about these false signs. We have warnings here about Persecutions. Warnings against deceptions, warnings about persecutions. Look back at the text with me, verse 9. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils, and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. And then when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say. But say whatever is given you in that hour, for for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. If that wasn't, a, and, and here's some more good news. And brother will deliver a brother over to death, and the father his child, and the children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated for all, or by all, for my name's sake. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Wow. They're just. These are not optimistic predictions right now. Okay, this is bad. So here's the disciples. You have to picture this. They are anticipating, according to Luke, looking and longing for and waiting and thinking that the coming of the kingdom of God is about to appear. The Messiah, the Christ, is right there in their midst. Let's do this, Jesus. And he lays all this on them. They're hoping that Christ will bring relief from all their trials and tribulations. But at this point, Jesus' words speak only about things getting worse before He gets to them getting better, which is the coming of the Son of Man. And while it is clear that this warning about persecution was made to Jesus' disciples in the first century, and you can see it fulfilled if you read through the book of Acts, just as Jesus predicted, it is also acceptable to understand these disciples as representative of other disciples or of believers who would later undergo the same type of experiences similar to what is still happening today, beloved, in regard to persecution. Now look back, or look back at the text. He says, be on your guard, verse 9. Be on your guard. You might think that this means watch out like I don't want you to get trapped. But that's not what it means because he tells them this is going to happen. This is going to happen to you. So he didn't mean go and hide so you can avoid the situation. But he meant this, be alert. Be alert. And in the context it means be alert against thoughtless or unworthy actions amid the persecution. One writer says it this way, Jesus warned his disciples to be alert against wrongful retaliation under persecution. See, persecution was not to take Jesus' disciples by surprise as if they didn't know it was coming. But persecution would come, but God had a purpose for this persecution. Whether it came from religious authorities, that's the councils and synagogues in the text, or secular authorities, governors and kings, that persecution would actually serve as an opportunity for Jesus' disciples to testify to others about Jesus Christ when they stood and made their defense before their accusers. And that's why He says, You will come before them for My sake to bear witness before them. Mark 13.10 And the Gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations. This is why this is going to happen, people. People. Persecution will be a reality for Jesus' disciples as a result of the necessity for the gospel to be proclaimed to all the nations before the end of the age. It's according to God's plan. One writer says, In proclaiming the gospel, the disciples would be persecuted, but they must not despair and give up. Despite all opposition, it is a priority in God's plan For this age and will be accomplished in accordance with his purposes. But preaching the gospel worldwide does not require or guarantee its worldwide acceptance. Right? So as a comfort to these disciples who were probably a little frightened by what Jesus had just said. And he's basically telling them, guys because the gospel has to go to the ends of the earth, because you are my gospel bearers, you are the one that's going to take that message, you will be persecuted. They will bring you before the courts and the synagogues and the kings, but you will stand in defense and testify for me in front of them. And just so you don't have to panic, He assures them that the Spirit will help them speak at that moment, at that hour. He assured the disciples that the Holy Spirit would help them testify or say the right things during this time of distress. But you know what He didn't say? He did not say that that would guarantee their acquittal. He did not say the Holy Spirit was going to get them out of the trouble. He just said He would tell you what to say or He would help you speak correctly in that moment of distress. And one writer says this, History bears ample witness to the fact that Christians on trial for their faith have been amazed themselves at the aptness of the answers that flashed into their minds at the opportune moment. Guys, this is going to happen, but it has to happen. Don't worry. Don't be anxious. The Spirit will be with you. Now, what is prohibited here is not thought, but anxious care. So he's not telling them, hey, don't think. Just check your mind out. Don't worry, the Spirit will just magically speak through your mouth. What he prohibits here is anxiousness, not thoughtfulness. And by the way, some people have taken a passage like this and used it to justify a lack of careful preparation in giving a Bible presentation or Bible teaching. So they'll just turn to this, they'll read it out of its context and go... You don't even have to worry about it. Just get up and read the Bible and the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. That's Guys, that's not in the context at all. This is amid persecution for their faith and a promise to those persecuted Christians that at that moment the Holy Spirit would help them to be able to say the right things. Things that would proclaim and testify and witness to Jesus Christ as they stood and gave a defense for why they proclaimed Christ. But by the way, if that wasn't all bad enough, verse 12 starts to talk to us about the family members that will turn against the disciples of Christ. Members of your own family would turn on them because of their faith to the extent that they would willingly deliver them over to the authorities for death. Wow. One cannot even be safe from persecution among their own flesh and blood. Can you imagine how disappointing this must have been for these disciples to hear? They think, this is it, baby. The time is now. And Jesus just starts laying off one bad thing after another. What? Our own family, because of our willingness to follow Christ, would turn on us and, and turn us over to the authorities who would be against Christians so that we might even be put to death? The hatred that can exist against the followers of Christ and the manifestation of that hate and persecution, beloved, by the way, is still a reality for this present age in which we live. One writer says, There is nothing that excites such love as the gospel when intelligently received, so there is nothing that occasions such hate as the same gospel when passionately rejected. Now, the one bright note in all this is Jesus' promise that those who endure, those who remain loyal to Jesus Christ till the end of their lives on earth, will be saved. And it can't mean from physical death, because he just said in Mark 13:12 that they would be killed. Some of them would be turned over to the authorities for death. So he's referring here that they would be saved from eternal death to eternal life. And Bible teachers are always quick to point out that Jesus is not saying here that you earn your salvation by enduring persecution. You know, if you, just, if you just grit your teeth and put up with persecution, you'll receive eternal life. That's not what he's saying. But it is a simple fact that true believers in Jesus Christ, by God's grace and power, ultimately must and do persevere in their faith in spite of their circumstances. They will persevere to the end by the grace of God, even under extreme circumstances such as persecution and the threat of death. Now, beloved, in this country we are so removed from severe persecution as a result specifically of our allegiance to Jesus Christ. How many of you, when you came here this morning, were concerned that you would be arrested, shot, beaten, burned, even yelled at, other than me doing the yelling, yet other than that? How many of you thought that? Did it even cross your mind just once? No? So it's hard for us, it's hard in this context, in 21st century America, to read a text like this and to relate to it. But the truth is that for most of history, and for many places even right now, The people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, know exactly what it means to be seriously persecuted because of their stand and their witness for Him. If you're ever bored one day and you're searching the Internet, just look up a site called Voice of Martyrs, V-O-M, Voice of Martyrs, and read a little bit about their persecution news of what happens to Christians and believers in Jesus Christ in other parts of our world. They are being persecuted. They are being turned over by their family members. They are being brought before the authorities. They are being killed. They are being arrested. It goes on right now. And like many things, we're just completely oblivious and blind to that reality. And beloved, not trying to no scare tactics, not making a prophecy, but if conditions in our country don't change, If they don't change, we are moving toward a period of time where it will not be okay to stand for Jesus Christ, at least the one in the Bible. They might let you stand for another Jesus Christ, but not for the one of the Bible. A period of time like that certainly could come. And then, this text will mean a lot to us. For those suffering Christians in these last days, the period of time, like I said, between Christ's first coming and His second, these words of Jesus could and can certainly help them avoid tripping up or stumbling because of some unexpected severity of persecution in regard to their faith. Hey, this is how things are going to be throughout history before the end. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. The world can be and is a violent and dangerous place, especially for the followers of Christ. But you know what? This is all according to God's sovereign plan. So we don't have to fret. We don't have to worry. We don't have to be surprised. We don't have to be anxious. And we don't have to be distracted. The stuff is happening. But we don't need to be caught up with the stuff. We need to continue to proclaim the gospel and endure until the end because the King is coming. He's coming. And that is why we can be optimist in spite of all the chaos that is happening around us. Let's pray. Father God, I ask that You would help us understand how to respond as Christians Father, in these last days. We we are distracted by many things in the world, but we are even distracted by, by elements of Christianity that want to focus in on, narrow in on the end. And Father, I think our time could be better spent telling people about how to be saved. About... Crucifying our sin and confessing it and turning from it and and beginning to live according to the spirit that resides inside of us that our lives might be a living testimony to the newness that we are because of Jesus Christ, that people might be drawn to that. I think our time would be better spent there. Proclaiming Christ and living out Christ. And yes, letting people know He is coming. But the day and the hour we do not know and the events that are taking place even in our world and have been for many, many ages are simply beginnings of the birth pains before the end of the age and the great tribulation that will take place. And there will be no mistake about identifying that. There will be no guessing or speculation for it will be clear when your judgment is unleashed in the incredible ways it is described in Revelation, upon this earth, before the Son of Man comes and establishes His kingdom on this earth. Father, help us. Help us not grow anxious, or worry, or fret, but help us be focused, staying on the course and continuing to proclaim the Gospel to our friends and our neighbors and our loved ones and our family, and telling them about Jesus Christ and how they might be saved so that they will be ready whenever it is that Christ comes again. Whether at the end of the age or when their life is taken from them and they see Him face to face. Father, we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.